You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we hear from one of the most vocal critics of Honolulu's rail project. Panos Provedoros is a civil engineer who has an emphasis on transportation issues. He hasn't held back on his criticism of the decision to build the, to build the steel-on-steel project, which has an estimated price tag now of upwards of $12 million. Today, many of the anti-rail voices could stand back and say, told you so, but given our state's shaky recovery out of this economic and health crisis, we have to ask, what is the most prudent way forward? Here's Panos. I'm totally exhausted about the inability of our decision makers to do the right thing after all the proof they have in front of them. I mean, this thing started as a mistake, but at least there was some hope that it will come close to, you know, on time and on budget and then starting serving our population. And it has become such a disappointment. It was never in my realm of uh, technical, you know, uh, imagination that it would run over twice the budget. And we're going to be talking about now 2031 delivery. I mean, these are crazy numbers by any standard of infrastructure delivery, of project delivery. And uh, I don't even know what kind of product we're going to get because we're getting uh, mistakes uh, that they're unheard of. I mean, the trains, the rails do not even fit on their rail tracks. I mean, these are beyond elementary mistakes. I really don't know what to tell you. And, and then I'm also looking at the costs, and uh, some of the contracts are coming in, you know, uh, surprisingly good. I was very surprised, for example, with Kiwi Pacific uh, delivering the first 10 miles. We're talking about Kapole to Aloha Stadium, one half of the project, for roughly at the time $700 million. Then there were some corrections and all $1 billion constructed, half the system constructed for $1 billion. And from that point, today, we're talking about 12.4. So, so many things are not even making any sense numerically that I really don't know how to opine, you know, in a reasonable way and explain things. Well, it is disheartening, you know, because we're not even going to be able to really use it. And it should have been operational by now. Exactly. And this is my position when people ask me now, now what? Clearly coming from the position of stop rail, there is no such thing as stopping the rail. It's very much a reality. The thing has pretty much reached middle street. I think right now, at least temporarily, all the energies should be focused uh, to provide the city and the taxpayers what they were expecting. By temporarily at least stopping at middle street, we have 16 miles of operational rail. Do that. I mean, focus completely on delivering 16 miles of rail to Middle Street. That can be done within a couple of years. There is no reason why the rail cannot be operational in two years from Kapole, where it's already there and started, all the way to Middle Street. And then think about the rest, which is, you know, the rest is extremely challenging. We're talking about a four-mile bridge through the core of a high-density area with a lot of problems with foundations, et cetera, et cetera, in addition to the ones that Hart has revealed about the utility corridor in, uh, on Dillingham and, and the great difficulty they have with uh, utility relocations. So I think that uh, Middle Street stopping it uh, temporarily is really uh, absolutely essential. And then, you know, they can take a pause and see what's going on and how they can take it to further points if necessary. I almost don't want to know what happens to all the land that was condemned leading up to Ala Moana Shopping Center. Well, you know what? Uh, given how prices have moved, that was the only smart move that Hart did. I mean, they bought quite a few things between, let's say, 2012 and 2018. And since then, even the minimal raise is about 10 to 20 percent. They're going to make a profit. I mean, if they're smart to, to de-invest and, you know, just sell them. So that's the last thing I would be uh, worried about, Catherine, because they bought good properties, downtown properties, and uh, the values has gone up. So it's actually good things for the taxpayer will make a profit. Well, I do think of the businesses maybe that were trying to fight the condemnation. Yeah, that's water under the bridge, but some people definitely suffered the direct hit. They keep, uh, you know, waving the ban that FDA is going to punish us. Are you kidding me? We have delivered 16 out of the 20 miles. And, you know, in fact, if we get our ducks lined up, it will be fully operational in two years. And we're talking about penalties because there is an agreement about Ala Moana. I mean, give me a break. And at the time that, you know, the costs have gone to $12 billion, I mean, the, if you want to be extreme about it, the FDA has been a co-conspirator in ballooning the cost with their requirements and with their, you know, ill advice. 
they actually ill-advised the Mayor Hanneman that the project will cost approximately $5 billion. They put the thing down, and then what happened? Uh, how long will the people, and for how much will the people suffer, the local people having this project? So th- these foreign people in Washington will, will just uh, hit us with extra penalties after this failure in their own kuleana? No, these are all lies by the local politicians that they simply want to, to push the project forward. And I know there is the uh, position that some folks are taking, like look at what happened with New Jersey, how they canceled the project and they didn't have to pay everything back. That's right. And that's a cancellation. We did 16 out of 20 miles and our cost has practically tripled. Under what jurisdiction? We can sue them. Under what jurisdiction the, the, the judge will say, yes, FDA is right, punish those Honolulu people. They did terrible. No. We did our absolute best, and we're paying with our own blood for so many years for a tax that was supposed to have already pretty much sunset. It's 2022, right, the, the original sunset of the tax. No way. This is going to be a forever thing. And the, the Washington folks will come and punish us? No, no. No, that, that's it. A total lie from rail opponents. I mean, they've been lying everything. I mean, clearly, from the very beginning, everything that they have said is a complete lie. What do you say to the people who live out on the west side who had ideas that they would be able to come into town and leave their car at home? Do they want to stop at middle? It almost doesn't matter because the city's own numbers showed that if the rail was as successful as they were planning to do, it will transport 3.2% of the trips that the Oahu people make. So who are those people that we're going to be transporting with this? I mean, I was at the case at the... Land Use Commission for Ho'opili, which actually had very detailed numbers about what Ho'opili will do, a huge transit-oriented development, 15,000 homes, etc. Okay, bottom line, what was the usage of the rail for Ho'opili based on the city's numbers? Three bus loads, three bus loads, Catherine, 150 to 200 people in the morning, rush hour. This doesn't mean anything. Based on the city's numbers, People will not be simply using the rail because people don't. And what do you say to the people in Kalihi by oh, not going down Dillingham? Uh, that, that's the worst. I mean, that's actually, uh, if we ever stop it at Middle Street, there would be a huge sigh of relief. I mean, if you drive now in Kalihi, it's like, you know, a street out of uh, Syria. It's, it's completely bombed out. It's, it's, a, it's a vehicle destroyer, and it'll be the same and worse for the next two, three years if they actually start having construction, elimination of lanes, and on and on and on. So uh, Kalihi, it's, uh, you know, he will be saved from this project and actually will do very little for them because, really, why do you need rail to go from Kalihi to Ala Moana? Well, I think, you know, some of the thought was, really, it's all about development. It's not about moving people. You know, yes. it's all about transportation. We've heard that argument. Exactly. And so what, what do you say to the folks, uh, to the property owners who were hoping that they would get a facelift? you know, that you would bring and breathe new energy into that community. A steel-on-steel elevated rail is nothing but blight. There is absolutely no way that property values will go up. First of all, you have a station which might have some utility because, okay, if you are the corner building across from the station, good for you. Uh, You have a one-minute walk, and then you are up on the train and you're going somewhere. But the rest for a mile, they have nothing. You just have an ugly guideway. What are you going to do now, parachute on top of the train? No. Uh, you have to walk, you know, quarter mile, half a mile to get to the nearest station. Who is doing that at this day and age? Well, I think the thought was, you know, along the rail route, you could make a case for affordable housing. Yeah, right. I call them planners' lies. Uh, you can call them something a little more euphemistic. You really, if you want to help the people, you give them buses. Only buses take them door to door. The rail is a white-collar type of development for, you know, suburbanites to go straight to downtown. And that was the purpose of this type of rail throughout the United States. As I said, from the very beginning, Catherine, these people, Hart and their predecessors, completely lied about all the features of elevated rail. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We have sunk all this money, the contracts have been signed, and, uh, well, visually, if you look at it, we have ordered the trains, we have laid the track, the stations are there, they still need a lot of work, but nothing that cannot be finished within a couple of years. So let's have it then. Let's have it. And, then, and, and if by any miracle the ridership materializes like the good old time ridership, 
uh, then maybe we do need to extend it. But none of this will come true. I'm on record that, you know, these people are expecting 120,000 people to Alamoana. If we ever build it there, we will hardly ever get 70,000. And remember, 30 bus lines will completely be eliminated or truncated to stop at the nearest station. So our Waipahu folks that, they, you know, they live all over Waipahu and used to take one express bus to Waikiki, no, now they will have a very fragmented trip that they cannot sleep on it. They have to catch a bus, go to the nearest station in Waipahu, ride on the steel on steel, and then get off wherever the train terminates and take another bus to Waikiki. Why is this working for the people? I mean, I'm sick and tired, literally, for being 14 years right and everything been happening wrong. I just hope that, you know, perhaps the council has a budget decision on the, on the rail. So, uh, we'll see a, a, a partial switch to something a little more rational. I don't expect any miracles, but at least some, you know, significant questions and significant diversion to something more doable. That was Panos Prevedoros, longtime rail critic. He's a professor at the University of Hawaii and is advocating that the city hit pause and reassess the route of our very expensive train. Hawaii's foster care system is facing big challenges. The need for foster families is great and growing. Halekipa works with at-risk youth and their families on Oahu, Kauai, and Hawaii Island. It's seen a dramatic increase in the need for temporary foster services for families over the past year. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with the Halekipa program coordinator, Michelle Roca, and therapist Jason Deluck about the new needs of their 50-year-old foster program. Makana, who has gone through Halekipa's transitional family homes, also joined the discussion. We start off with Michelle. We always need more families. We would always benefit from having an expanded program. There's not really any um, maximum we could hit. We could always benefit from, from more, more families and being able to offer more services. But we are seeing higher needs right now with a younger age group. We're seeing referrals for younger and younger children and We've also seen, because of the pandemic, there's been fewer residential services, uh, fewer rooms available in residential programs, or um, there's a steady influx of youth that uh, returned to Hawaii from programs on the mainland. The Transitional Family Homes Foster Program really has seen an increased need to provide this level of care. Can you talk a little bit more about what's involved in the Transitional Family Home Foster Care Program? Sure. So it's a therapeutic program where children and youth temporarily live in one of our nurturing family home environments, and these families are highly trained in trauma and responding to trauma, and they, you know, they provide a stable environment, then we come in and offer our therapeutic service. So youth in the transitional family home program have a dedicated therapist and case manager and that therapist works with them intensively twice a week uh, for at least two hours per session. And our goal is to reunite youth back to their family of origin or biological family. Um, it's not always possible. That's not always the case for everyone. Um, and in those instances, we really focus on transitioning into independent living. So that's really the role of the therapist is to provide the, the intensive therapy for youth while they're in our family home. So service is typically anywhere from six to nine months, but sometimes a year or more. It really just depends. So what would be the objective for an individual who comes to you who is unable to be reunited with his family or her family, but is also too young? I, I think you mentioned you're seeing an increase in much younger children being referred to the program to mm -hmm. be transitioned into independent living? In that instance, what we would do is really we'd be in partnership with the Department of Human Services, um, and our focus would be to address any mental health or behavioral issues and really just stabilize the youth as, as best as possible, um, working in partnership with DHS, who would be arranging a long-term or permanent housing solution for the youth, and then we would assist therapeutically in, in that transition. And then that shift, seeing more younger children in need of your services, is that something mm -hmm. that has occurred during the pandemic? 
Yes, and I mean, I'm, I'm speaking sort of just based on my observation, um, but yes, I have seen the referrals increase for a much lower age. So right now, the age group that we serve is children from ages 3 to 17, but the bulk of referrals is usually 12 and older. However, more recently, we're starting to see referrals for youth in the age ranges of like 5 to 7 becoming much more common. Hmm. Makana, if you're comfortable, could you share with us at what age you entered the program? I entered Halakiba at age 14. And I understand that you are now transitioning to independent living. You've aged out of the specific program. How has that transition been for you? Well, pretty good, actually. But I'm glad to hear. And, and why do you think it's worked for you? Why do you think it's been successful for you? I don't have to put that on my peers and my resilient my peers because uh, they helped me a lot. And my resilient is of me knowing that I can survive in this world. My experience with this program had to do with a lot of my key problem that I had was self-sabotage. Details of self-sabotaging is felt not good enough, not deserving. Hmm. And the way I was using it is and I felt uh, in a vulnerable state, I started to self-sabotage. But Halakiba showed in a different way that it gave me time to grow, people to help me grow, similar interactions with other people that same situation causes. And that's my core experience. That's a pretty positive takeaway. Jason, I wouldn't mind if you're comfortable taking the opportunity just to describe a little bit about your role in this program and how you help facilitate transitions like the one that Makana has gone through. Sure. Okay, so my role as therapist, I see them um, twice a week and I, after referral that we get, they have a list of treatment targets that need to be attended to. But in general, the way I work is more collaborative, especially because I myself has, have been in therapy my entire life and I kind of understand what helped me feel safe and what didn't. And I feel like when the youth feels like they're a part of the treatment itself, being then rather being told what to do, it really helps facilitate the notion of confidence and self-worth in the program. And instead of like telling the youth what to do, it's more like a guided process of self-discovery. It's like completely uh, non-judgmental on my part. Makana, in working with Holly Kipa, did you feel like your needs were listened to? Did you feel like you had space to kind of figure out what you wanted for yourself? I'm going to be honest. Uh, from the beginning, no. Uh, I felt like I never had anything. But later on, I started to mature and grow. They showed me that I had a lot of things that I didn't take advantage of. And that was part of my self-sabotage. That being said, that I guess I did met all my needs. And... If we can go back to you, Michelle, and and take a step back and look at that transitionary period, why is having a program that helps young adults have the tools to live by themselves important? Well, I think that, you know, for so many youth, um, we just, you know, we hear stories all the time about how people age out of the foster care system becoming young adults and have very few tools or resources um, or skills in what to do next. And so in the case where the youth is in um, our, our program, our Transitional Family Home Program and Approaching 18, we really work to actively start adding to the team any case managers or programs or services uh, often that we have in-house here at Halekipa to, to really start building those bridges to the next step and increasing job skills or accessing educational opportunities, but also looking into, you know, long-term living and housing solutions. So that was the case with Makana. He had a a couple of different services in in place, and then once he became 18, he moved into the transitional living program. Part of the reason why we wanted to have this conversation is because May is National Foster Care Month, and it is important to draw awareness to this issue And so what would you say are the misconceptions that people generally encounter about the foster care program, or what are the questions people have when they might want to get more involved? 
Well, I think one important distinction for us is that we, our program is very specific to address uh, behavioral or mental health or those kinds of challenges. So in that way, we differ from sort of the, what you think of as like average foster care program. So in our program, whenever possible, our goal is to stabilize and then reunite or at least link to, to the next permanent step. That was program coordinator Michelle Roca and therapist Jason Reddick of Halekipa. They were speaking with our Savannah Harriman Pope. And we also heard from Makana, who is 18 years old. He is currently taking online classes to earn a certificate as a food handler. He says he wants to work with food because it has the power to connect people. We will have links to Halekipa's foster program on our website. In Greece, the risk of contracting COVID-19 in a refugee camp is up to three times higher than outside the camp. Because first of all, they cannot keep a distance. They have to leave many people together. They cannot wash their hands because there's not enough water. Even so, asylum seekers are among the last to be offered vaccines. How politics and bureaucracy in Greece have left some of the country's most vulnerable people unprotected. That story is on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today looks at the move to vaccinate younger teens across the state. Reporter Eleni Avendano joins us today. Good morning, Eleni. Aloha. How are you? Good. So, you know, it's hard to believe that we are doing what preteens are going to be moving into that category. I mean, a month ago, I was worried that we wouldn't be able to um, accommodate even just the adults. Yeah, yeah, this is a pretty big milestone, you know, with Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine now authorized for um, kids aged 12 to 15. Um, That's a pretty big segment of our population, actually. And, of course, prior to this, the Pfizer vaccine uh, did already have the green light for older teens and all adults. Um, But when you look at the numbers, we have almost 68,000 young people between the ages of 12 and 16 here in Hawaii. Um, about 55 of whom actually go to public and charter schools, which is a good thing because the several campuses are already gearing up to deliver shots um, to students. And Nanea Kalani told me yesterday, um, she's a spokeswoman for the Department of Education, and she says, you know, they're ready, um, but it is a lot of students, so they're going to try to expand capacity at these clinics that they've already scheduled um, and hoping to accommodate this big influx of more students. Yes, we saw them, you know, start to offer the clinics right there on campus at some of the schools. Right, yeah. So Hawaii Pacific Health, they started a bus called uh, the COVID-19 Vax Squad Bus, and they held their first clinic uh, last Thursday at Waipahu High School, and it went pretty well. Um, but, you know, when you look at our population, too, our, our younger segment of the Hawaii population is actually the largest Um, And so far, when you look at the number of people, you know, how we're doing in this um, vaccine rollout, um, we've been able to offer at least one dose of vaccine to about 35% of people in their 30s here in Hawaii, and almost a third of people, 18 to 29. Um, So we're well on our way, but, um, you know, I think the the younger, um, the younger segment of the population will will be a a longer um, process to go through. Well, it's just kind of hard to think that we've, you know, gone by another school year uh, and people are thinking about summer programs and summer camps, you know, so uh, getting these kids vaccinated and inoculated, you know, will will give parents more peace of mind as as the kids go out and start interacting. Yeah, totally. And and the DOE is really um, focused on its goal of returning to in-person learning in the fall. And so they say the expansion of the vaccine campaign is really going to help them reach that goal. Um, You know, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, he said, um, and he's a father to a 14-year-old, he said yesterday uh, that, you know, expanding the vaccine campaign to children will definitely be a game changer for the upcoming school year, um, especially when it comes to breaking the, the pattern of spread. Um, because oftentimes we know cases might not be as severe among, you know, young kakeki, 
but you know they definitely have the ability to spread it to Kapuna or classmates. So uh, definitely a, a step in the positive direction to going back to what folks would like to um, see as a you know going back to what we where where we were before this all began. Yes, and I know uh, I think some private schools have begun the uh, clinics too on their campuses and reaching out to the public schools in the area, you know, in the families just to you know. Uh, extend the kakua, right? If you want to be vaccinated and they've got a clinic nearby where you live, I mean, gosh, they want to make it easy for people. Yeah, and the State Department of Health is um, seeking to get some extra Pfizer doses um, in light of the fact that we're going to have, you know, more people eligible. Um, and, and, you know, it's coming as you know, as a backdrop where we know actually Hawaii's supply of demand, or sorry, supply of vaccines has actually for the first time began to exceed the demand um, among, you know, older adults or the rest of the population. So now that we have um, the eligibility pool widened, DOH is um, trying to order, um, you know, several thousand more doses um, of the Pfizer vaccine, particularly to accommodate this younger cohort. Yeah, and you know, it was funny, I was driving uh, around the island and I happened to see in Waimanalo a, a group of uh, medical personnel in uh, scrubs and I was wondering, gosh, I don't think there was a clinic around here. And it, then as I drove up, I saw somebody had a sign, free vaccines today. And so there was an outreach group that was going out to, uh, you know, to, to reach out to the homeless camps in that area. So it, it was a nice thing to see that they're, they're really uh, trying to get as many people uh, vaccinated as possible. So, but thank you so much, yeah. Eleni. Thank you. We have been talking with uh, public health reporter Eleni Avendano uh, with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring outdoor pop-up installations across the museum. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. With the increase in vaccinations and travel in and out of Hawaii ramping up with the vaccine passport launching today, will churches now resume mission work? Well, that's what the conversations Russell Subiano set out to find when he spoke with Oahu-based elder Nolan Michael Hicken, a missionary with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And with the increase in vaccinations and travel opening up, I mean, we, we're seeing an increase in tourism already. Do you expect there to be an increase in missions or resuming the way that you engaged in missions prior to the pandemic? Yeah, so uh, it's amazing. Uh, one of the apostles of our church, um, Dieter F. Uchtdorf, Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, has said that this has been a hinge point for missionary work, where it's had a really vast change. Uh, traditionally, for hundreds of years, really, I mean, I guess hundred uh, or so since we've had missionaries, everyone knows this is the the guys in, or girls in white shirts or nice dresses with the black tags that knock on people's doors. Mm -hmm. But that's really been changing over the past two years now, um, and it's transitioned a lot more to working online. Because, like, a lot of people think, uh, you know, honestly, being the guy who's knocked on a ton of doors before this whole pandemic thing is we understand that we, we don't want to be an inconvenience on anybody. We're just really, you know, this message really means a lot to us, so we try and um, sh spread that with everyone in any means we can. So that's why we do that. But we really want to just get to those that want to hear this message the best way that we can. We just want to help out those that want to connect with God. So this new pandemic has really changed the way fundamentally that we've done missionary work and to transition more into an online atmosphere uh, to be able to reach out to people through, uh, like, online videos and advertisements and Bible studies and Zoom calls and Facebook and very many unique ways by sharing our talents online. And we've seen amazing successes here in the Hawaii Honolulu Mission, and all, many missions in, in the church worldwide have seen a, a huge change in focus, from just knocking doors to trying to work online and let those that are interested come to us, so to speak. What will travel look like for LDS missionaries in the near future? Is it something that will continue to increase as things kind of open up and get safer, or does the church plan on, like you said, doing more virtual events until a later time? 
currently right now we are trying to get all the missionaries out to where they, they possibly can. You know, we believe in trying to preach the gospel in every to everybody in every kindred tongue and language in every country and climb across the world. So there will always be missionaries that are, are going to be planned on going to, to everywhere that they'll allow us, uh, you know, local laws persisting. But right now, even in the Hawaii Honolulu Mission, we have about, I'd say, close to two dozen, if not a dozen and a half missionaries that are awaiting uh, to go to certain countries. But due to the, the virus there, they're kind of staged and working right now in the Hawaii Honolulu Mission. Anywhere from they're going to Taiwan, to Portugal, to Brazil, to the Philippines, um, and they're just awaiting for this to kind of calm down. And so for the future, they're going to continue to pre- try and press missionaries out to where they feel the Lord needs them. That's the other thing is that it's not just like random where they get sent. It's, it's a very act of, of prayer, and exactly they're sent exactly where the Lord needs them. So they're going to continue to try and do that as a, as the, as a church and as a mission. Um, but, um, you know, we follow local guidelines and laws of the land, and we believe that. So as of right now, we're going to continue to try and work on Know, online and social media means and continue that trend, but also in the future as things open up, try and push people out to wherever they can go um, to share about this message that we love so much to every kindred tongue and people. Are missionaries, are, are they getting the vaccine? Is that something that the church is recommending? Yes, that's a great question. This is something that um, the prophet, the prophet of our church, Russell M. Nelson, has encouraged, but also left up to the decision of each member. It's something very personal for each person, but as a mission and as a as a church, we encourage people to get vaccinated if they can, but also make this a matter of personal decision and responsibility and even prayer, um, turning to the Lord to see if they they should. Um, as for myself, I got my first shot I think I think a week ago or two weeks ago, and I get my second shot next week, and I'd say about 80% of the mission uh, is either getting vaccinated or been vaccinated. Um, a lot of the times it's more people are either really, really afraid of needles and it's people who wouldn't right. get the regular flu shot who just right. are really, really scared. Or it's sometimes their, their parents sometimes uh, to request the, the wishes of their parents. They, they won't get the vaccine um, just because their parents won't, you know, sometimes they're a little bit worried about their kids away from home. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, we do uh, recommend that, you know, every missionary gets the vaccine, but leave it up to them to their own personal choice. Um, and also every member should get the vaccine if they can, um, but also leave it up to their own personal choice. And we never would like discriminate against anyone in their de- decision, but we just would encourage it for the you know, sake of public health. If you could kind of describe what the initial impacts that COVID had on your missionary program. Yeah, for locally, I was serving at Maui on the time. I was serving with my companion. We were in the Wailuku and Kahului area mm-hmm. on Maui. And beforehand, uh, the, the pandemic, it was very much how it had been traditionally. We would sometimes go door-to-door and uh, knock and ask if people were interested in learning more about our message. We'd also work a lot through local leaders and our church to see if any of their friends or family were wanted to be interested in this member, this like message and have local meetings and fun you know, recreational activities at our chapels and help share and just teach in every way that we could about Jesus Christ. And then when we found out that this pandemic was happening, and especially about the stay-at-home order, it took a very, very drastic change in how missionary work was, was done. Um, a lot of missionaries across the world would, would, were kind of sent home, and a lot of missionaries in our mission specifically who had any pre-existing medical conditions were told that they had to go home just to be closer to their families. Um, but luckily, me and my companion were healthy enough where we could stay out. And um, so we conducted missionary work through remote means. We would stay and follow all the, the you know, stay-at-home orders, on policies, and we could only go out to get groceries and to exercise. Um, and we just called members of our of our congregation, called people that we had taught in the past, set up a lot of Zoom meetings and lessons, and worked a lot on social media through Facebook uh, videos and posts, trying to reach out to those in need and to help teach those about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that was, like, I think, the biggest thing that, that really changed through it. Um, yeah, but um, the fundamentals of missionary work were still the same. Just inviting other people to connect with God and sharing and testifying about how Jesus Christ has blessed us and trying to invite others to do the same. And we saw great success and miracles during those 99 days of quarantine. I know that traditionally uh, LDS missionaries go door to door. As the rest of the world transitioned from in-person meetings to virtual meetings, it sounds like you're saying that 
that you also did a, a similar transition. Did that reduce the amount of new people that you encountered that you would normally encounter when you went door to door? Yeah, I would say it reduced the amount of people, like total people that we met, but the, the amount of people that we met that actually were interested uh, went up actually from oh. my experience. Okay. We meet a lot of people, you know, and just say hi or let us in to eat with their family because the people of Hawaii are extremely generous, the kindest people I've ever met in my life. But they wouldn't oftentimes be very interested in our message. They're just really, really kind-hearted people. But when the transition hit, the biggest thing I've seen is it kind of got rid of a lot of the people in the middle, like fence-sitters or whatever who were just in between on God. Mm -hmm. either had a lot of people who turned away from God um, and got kind of bitter and sad. And that was really sad to see. And, of course, we try to reach out to everybody. But then people in the middle sometimes were reaching out toward the God, and they were very humbled by this experience. And they really reached out and tried to connect more and were wondering, why is the world doing this and why are these things happening? Mm -hmm. And they looked for a higher power. And so we, we saw many miracles, me and my companion, in the Wailuku area. And just for a frame of reference, before that time, not that, like, I guess, outward success or a number of baptisms or people joining our church meant anything, but our local area had probably had one person join our church and be baptized in about the course of eight months. Over the 100 days of quarantine, the pandemic, our area, just me and my companions, we saw and helped three people enter into the waters of baptism and join our church and make those sacred promises with God. So it was kind of like a, I guess, transition, or like they say in the scriptures, like sifting of wheat and tares moment for, I think, the world, and especially for people um, all around trying to find God. Definitely turned into a moment where people's faith were tested and went out to search, you know, what they could place their faith. Yeah, it was, that was exactly what it was. And we met so many great people online and um, just got to really help help them. And we also tried our best to help out with the community as well we could. One of the biggest things we believe was in service. So we would get all masked up and gloved up and go help out with the Maui Food Bank. Um, and then later when I was in Hilo on the Big Island during a little bit after the 99-day quarantine order, we would help out every week at the local food bank there. And it was just, it was an amazing opportunity to make a lot more genuine connections is what I've, I've found out through the quarantine. Maybe less connections, like you maybe meet less people since we can't go door to door and we can't see as much people in, individually, but a lot more genuine connections either over Zoom or, you know, behind a mask. Either way, it was really cool. It's good to hear that more churches will be able to resume and, and continue to bring hope to a lot of people, especially in a time wherein people are struggling with hope and faith. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. And could I just say one quick like shout out real quick before sure. we go? Always feel free to turn out to your uh, missionaries, to the local missionaries in your area. We just love to help people. Uh, even if you're not interested in our message or anything, we just love to be a positive force. And God bless you all. Mormon missionary elder Nolan Michael Hicken talking with our Russell Subiono about resuming missions as we move through this pandemic. The Honolulu Star Advertiser recently featured an article to mark Volunteer Week and the 60th anniversary of the Peace Corps. We reached out to Carolyn McKenzie, who penned the Community Voice column. She leads a group called Return Peace Corps Volunteers of Hawaii. It's 60 years, and the thing that's cool is I've been doing a lot of interesting research, and now that I have become the president of the group here in the state, I didn't realize Hawaii's big connection to Peace Corps from way, way back in the beginning. And the thing that is really interesting is that the three founding goals are still the same 60 years later. And that, that's really cool. That's what drives a lot of us is to go out. We are invited to countries, number one, to help countries. And it is an invitation the second goal is to teach where we are, let people know what an average American is like, which is really fun because when I was in Ukraine, the first thing they did was take me to McDonald's because they thought I liked French fries. <laughs> and I told them that McDonald's really wasn't a necessity. <laughs> so, but the biggest impact for most return volunteers is the third goal, 
which is bringing where we served home to America. And that's what's really fun is that we talk to rotary clubs, we talk to high schools, we talk to college kids, and we talk about where we've been, and it's a very real experience. You know, it's not just a four-day Global Gateway holiday tour. This is actually living and learning the language and being with locals in the country where you serve. Now, the pandemic forced the recall of our volunteers that were just flung worldwide, and I'm sure they were just so disappointed having their contracts cut Uh, short. The pandemic in March of 2020, just over a year ago, the Peace Corps director brought everyone home, and everybody was given basically 24 hours to pack the bags and evacuate home. And for some kids, it was quite an ordeal. For others, it was easier I heard stories from the kids that were in Ukraine about having to wait and go and which train and where and what plane, et cetera. And yet others, the kids that served in Jamaica, it was easier to get out of Jamaica. But yes, and now the kids, those, there were 14 that evacuated back home to Hawaii, 10 of whom we knew about, and four who had returned to Hawaii because this was home of record but they returned to their families who had moved to the mainland. But we took care of the 10 kids that were here, Big Island and Oahu, and uh, they're waiting to go back. They're really hoping that they can get back. Now, I understand that some volunteers are helping out, you know, with this pandemic, with the vaccine clinics. Yes, well, the secondary has a secondary program now for people who can't do long-term. They have a program called Tusco Response, and the response volunteers are target are very targeted individuals. They have a skill, and the response volunteers are the ones who have been asked to help with the FEMA and the vaccine uh, vaccinating people. And sadly, uh, we had a volunteer on Maui who really, really wanted to help out, but there's no FEMA clinic over on Maui. But she has been able to work with an RPCV who's helping in the clinics on Maui for other health care issues. So, you know, we've got, we've got quite a network. We do, and they're just all over the state. Yes. Well, you know, the Big Island return volunteers, probably they're about 350 that I know of, and many of them love the Peace Corps and they love the Big Island because of where they trained way back in the 60s. And they came back to Hawaii because they had such a great experience while they were training that they grew to love Hawaii and came back home. And they have, it's really fun. I wish we could do visuals on this conversation, but maybe another time. There are wonderful pictures of the early groups, Nepal, Thailand 1, Thailand 2, um, Korea 1, where they trained at Hilo in an old mental facility. And as the pictures show, the morgue was the cafeteria, the old morgue, the nurses' quarters were the girls' dorms and other rooms for the guys. And then they, that was the first six weeks of training. And the second six weeks of training, they were taken up to the Waipiu Valley to learn thatching and how to build mud houses, work with yaks, how to kill chickens. And it was very, very much what they would be doing when they went out to the Pacific Islands or Southeast Asia in the 60s. Well, I think volunteers just have this sense of adventure to be able to just, you know, raise their hand and say, I'll go, you know, send me somewhere. But folks might not know that there's no real age cap, right, on volunteering. I think that's one of the, I have a friend, a classic, I mean, it's a classic example. You always have a friend, oh, I couldn't make it after college, so I just gave up. And it's like, no, I was 63 when I listened to an ad on the radio on public radio, driving in my regular work commute in California. And they were advertising during my commute that I was stuck in a California traffic jam for six hours. Oh, my. The wonderful ad for people, at that time, they were asking for senior volunteers 
who could make a difference who didn't really need to retire quite yet from the working world but might like to be a volunteer overseas and use their skills somewhere. And that's how I ended up becoming, A, a Peace Corps volunteer at the ripe old age of 63. 35% of the group that I was with in Ukraine had answered that ad. And so, yes, there is no upper age limit. We had Bernie from New York was 83 when he signed up. And he made all 27 months and learned Russian, got a Facebook page, did emails. It was wonderful. And he really worked with his group when he was working with disabled children up in um, Ukraine outside Kiev, about three hours outside Kiev. But, yes, there's no upper age limit. And so for the folks out there maybe that have retired from their careers and are wondering, well, gee, what can I bring to the table? Uh, you know, what are they looking for? What would you advise? Well, the best thing is to actually go to the website, PeaceCorps.gov, because it will tell you the six areas of expertise, what Peace Corps volunteers can do. And you can pick your area. Now the Peace Corps has changed its application from when I joined. I joined and you were sent somewhere. Now you can actually look at all the jobs that are available, the countries that have openings, and you can pick a country, you can pick a job, or you can say, just send me anywhere. This is what I would do. This is what I will do. I will go anywhere. But the six areas of expertise are in agriculture, healthcare, community development, youth development, and teaching. But um, those areas are very broad. Many of the community economic development people, like myself, were sent over to work with small agencies. And we helped, my agency in Ukraine was a group advocating for change for people with disabilities. And Ukraine in 2010, was an interesting, it was just interesting to see how people with disabilities were treated. And while this is the 21st century, most of the kids that had any disability at all basically were lumped into disabled category, put in an orphanage, problem solved. So it was a real awakening to show them what we do in the United States or what the Europeans do for people with disabilities, of any disability, that you can go to school, that you can put a kid in a desk and put a desk, put bricks under a desk if you have to so his wheelchair will fit. It's just fascinating what we learned and what you can do. So A, number one, PeaceCorps.gov. And for some people who say, I don't have 27 months to give, but I have a year or I have six months or nine months, Peace Corps response was developed for that particular type of volunteer who would like to give time, but not two years. And that, again, is at PeaceCorps.gov, Peace Corps response, and those are highly targeted jobs. You can read on exactly what job, where it is, what the skills are required, the language requirements, if you fit the bill, the day you need to pack your suitcase, the day you will be going. The friends that I have who are former Peace Corps workers, uh, former Peace Corps volunteers, they just love the memories, of the, the experiences that they've had and the friendships over the years. And it, it, it is a, a, a pretty tight group. Yes, and the article in the newspaper has been really fun for the numbers of people who have mailed the article to their buddies on the mainland about, yes, it was a wonderful thing that our group did to recognize our volunteers and also National Volunteer Week plus the Peace Corps anniversary. I went to meet an older volunteer who saw the article and called me right away. She was so sorry she hadn't connected to us in, you know, in, in the intermittent years. But it was just fun. We sat and talked in the parking lot, and she is a perfect example of why the third goal is so wonderful. She served in the Micronesia area in 1962-1964, and the family that she stayed with, the kids 
are now living here in Hawaii. And she talks to her family. She sees these kids. She has kept the connection with Micronesia going for over 50 years. Such are the stories of ex-Peace Corps volunteers. We spoke with Carolyn McKenzie just before she took off on an extended trip across the country. Volunteers continue to network through a number of events, including one that happens later today. The virtual event starts at 2 p.m. Hawaii time. It is hosted by the National Peace Corps Association. Uh, Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips, who introduced a new Peace Corps Act, uh, as well as the head of the Citizen Climate Lobby, are scheduled to speak. For links, head to our website. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Omfroy, M.D., ophthalmologist and eye surgeon specializing in laser vision correction, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. The FDA could soon issue emergency authorization for kids and the COVID vaccine. Our new phase will focus on three areas. First, kids, children between the ages of 12 and 15 years of age. But kids are only a small fraction of the worst case outcomes. So does the rush to vaccinate children come with a different set of risks and benefits than with adults? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Well, that wraps it up for us today. You know, we would like to hear from you. Where do you stand on rail these days? Think we should stay the course and end it all in Moana? Got any other ideas? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you want to listen back to this week's rail interviews or catch up uh, with any of our stories, check out the Conversation Podcast on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, or go to the on-demand section of the HPR mobile app. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. (music) 